Well, good morning, River Oak. There you go. All right. My name is Kyle Toddy. I'm the uh, missions and outreach pastor here at River Oak Church. Uh, I'm excited to be uh, in the Word with you this morning in Luke chapter 7. But before we begin, I want to say a couple things to you. Uh, one, I've had like a sinus infection or something going on the last week, and I can't hear out of my left ear. So if I start speaking like really loud, it's because I can't hear. So they'll just dial me down in the back. So don't worry about it. Uh, just let, let it roll. Uh, no big deal. Um, and we also just returned from uh, Lesotho, Africa, just a few weeks ago. Uh, as you may or may not know, we had a team of four of us that just came back two weeks ago. Uh, we had a really, really awesome trip. There will be some uh, pictures on the screens behind me here just showing you what it looked like, uh, some faces of people who, who put their faith in Jesus, which is awesome. We saw um, five or six people come to faith in Jesus. We baptized uh, three in the cold, cold, cold river in our valley, like miserably cold. So they're serious about following Jesus, apparently. Um, we, we had discipleship lessons with a lot of uh, believers in different villages. Uh, just a really, really awesome, awesome trip. Uh, we want to say thank you guys for praying for us. If you're getting updates on social media or whatever it may be, uh, thank you guys for praying for us because it's only through um, your prayers uh, and the work of the gospel that uh, I believe that things actually uh, happen, to be honest with you. So uh, as every time we go out, Wherever it may be, sharing the gospel, the goodness of Jesus, uh, my hope and my prayer is that we as a body are praying for one another, uh, that the gospel will go, go forth and people will uh, repent and believe in Jesus uh, as their savior. So thank you for that. So this morning, we're going to be in the gospel of Luke. We're going to continue through the book of Luke in chapter seven. But before, as, well, as you're turning to Luke, turn, turn over to chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, take them out with me uh, or turn them on and go to Luke chapter one. I will be in the NASB version, the New American Standard. So if you have that on your, on your phone, you can go to it. Um, if, if you don't have that physical Bible or something else, it's okay. It'll be, it'll be close to the wording of mine uh, with the NASB version. Luke chapter one, I want us to show, uh, to see something out of the gospel of Luke, uh, a few things before we begin this morning. So I'm going to read the first four verses for you, and as I read, I want you to look and see what Luke says about why he's writing this gospel. Verse one, and as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, that's like a run-on sentence. Mine's so long. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Here we go, verse four. So that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. All right, so Luke tells us why he's writing his gospel, right? So why the book of Luke is in our Bibles, why Luke wrote in the first place, is because this guy, Theophilus, believed in Jesus. So Luke said... So many people have, have undertaken to, to write these things down. I'm, I'm going to as well. Luke was a historian. He was a, very, he was a doctor, a very smart guy. So he sat down to compile every, all these stories in consecutive order so that Theophilus would have a grounding in his faith. Know that this Jesus who he believed in was in fact uh, God in the flesh and that he had hope to stand on in Jesus. So as we read the Gospel of Luke, uh, here and now, on this side of the cross, thousands of years later, we read what Luke says to Theophilus. I'm writing this for you so that you may know uh, the hope that you have in you. That's why I'm writing this Bible or this book in, in the scriptures. So it's important for us to remember that as we come to any book in the Bible, whether it's Luke or John or Revelation or Isaiah, no matter what it is, we have to understand that the parts 
inform the whole and that the whole inform the parts, if that makes sense. What I mean is the Gospel of Luke, each story in the Gospel of Luke is there for a reason. Luke put it in there for a purpose. Each story comes after one another for a reason. He connects them all together to give us a big picture of who Jesus is. The book of John tells us that uh, Jesus did uh, so many miracles and taught so many things that they, if, we, if we wrote them all down in books, there would be uh, no library big enough to hold all of them. His point was there were so many things that we could write down, but we've narrowed them down to these stories so that you may know the hope that you have in Jesus. The Bible works that way as well. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy informs the book of Luke. The book of Genesis informs the book of Revelation and so on and so forth. So as we read the book of Luke, let's keep that in mind that Luke wrote for a reason and that reason was to show us who Jesus is and the hope that we have in him. I also want to show us something else before we begin uh, in our passage this morning. There's going to be a, a series of uh, scriptures that come across the screen here, about six of them. You don't have to turn there. They're all from the Gospel of Luke, starting in, verse, uh, in chapter 5. So in chapter 4, chapter 5, is when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, his public ministry. And I want you to see one thing as we walk up to our story this morning, that Jesus hung out with crowds, right? He says in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 1, now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, chapter 5, verse 12, while he was in one of the cities, right, a very populated place, 617, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place and there was a large crowd of his disciples. 79, Jesus turned and said to the crowd that was following him. 711, his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. 724, he began to speak to the crowds about John. One thing that is abundantly clear is that these crowds were following Jesus around. What is true about every crowd? What's a crowd made up of? People, right? Not a trick question. People. Crowds are made up of people. What's one universal truth about all people in all places at all times, no matter where you're from, what time we've lived in, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter your, uh, your race, your gender, your age, what's one thing about us that binds us all together? I'm waiting. I mean, there are, there are probably many things, but I'm looking for one. Right, so death, so sin, right? Sin binds us all together. It's the one thing that is universal, right? Faith is offered to all, but sin binds us all together. We are all born in sin. We're all born in a place of needing a savior. We need redemption and forgiveness of our sins. That's one thing that is true about all people. So Jesus is hanging out with these people, um, the crowds, these people are following him along. He's teaching things about the kingdom of God, telling people who he is, and teaching them about forgiveness of sins. We are all sinners in need of repentance and faith in Jesus. No matter uh, if you're, uh, no matter in the Bible, the Pharisees or the tax collectors are in the same category. The lawyers uh, and the prostitutes are in the same category. A business owner in Chesapeake, Virginia, or a shepherd in Lesotho, Africa, it doesn't matter. What binds us all is our need for forgiveness because of sin. So as we turn to our story this morning in chapter 7 of Luke, chapter 7, we're going to be in verse 36. And we're going to round off the, uh, the chapter this morning. We've got a lot to cover in a little amount of time. So chapter 7 starting in verse 36, and I'm going to invite you guys to stand with me as we read the word of God. 
But before we start this, I want you to know the story focuses on two people, okay? So two different people, completely different people, and they're two completely different responses to who Jesus is. So as we read this, we're going to read it in bulk, then we'll pray, and then I'm going to walk us through each verse, and we're going to see what's going on and why it's happening. So starting in verse 36, it says this. Now one of the Pharisees was, was requesting to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That Jesus entered into the Pharisee's house. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is, who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So Jesus responds, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon, said, uh, Simon replied and said, say it, teacher. A moneylender who had two debtors, one owed uh, 500 denarii and the other 50, when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Jesus said to Simon, you have judged correctly. Verse 44, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. 48, then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Then those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you for your word and what it, uh, what it says to us, the promises that we read in them. Uh, God, we ask that you would just be with us this morning. Speak through me as I proclaim truth. God, as we read your word, as we study it, God, open our hearts to be, uh, be receptive to the truth. God, give us wisdom and insight to understand what uh, your word means. God, give us, give us minds ready to listen, to be attentive. God, give us hearts that are ready and open to listen. God, and be with us today. And I pray that all that we say, all that we do in this place today is honoring and glorifying to you as we worship you this morning. We ask all things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So my, uh, my wife, uh, Kim, is due with our second child in less than two weeks. And uh, every time I say that, I have, yeah, thank you. I have this like little panic attack because I'm just like so not prepared to bring another child into the world. And I see like some women rolling their eyes at me. I have no part in the matter, I understand. Uh, <laughs> I do play a support role, which is very important. It's very important. My job is to be supportive and not pass out when the day comes. So uh, as men can probably attest in this place, that is, that is a little bit more difficult than you might think. Um, but no, we're excited. We can't wait for uh, the blessing that God has given us. Uh, but it, it is coming very, very quick. We have a daughter as well. Her name is Lily. She's two years old. Uh, there's a picture so you don't have to look at me as long. Um, she's much cuter than I am. And uh, she's sweet. She's two years old, and she's looking forward to, uh, to her baby brother as well, who, might I say, remains nameless. Uh, <laughs> sorry. 
My wife's giving me a stare. Yeah, we don't have a name for our child, so you are welcome to uh, to give us your your uh, give us your your name if you if you have one uh, if you have one tucked away and you'd like to give a suggestion. We'd love to have it. Uh, you can drop those off before June tenth. They will count, and we'll. Uh, We'll look through them. Now, we're, we are excited about what God is bringing uh, to us, but uh, I love my wife, and I love my family. I love my son, who I haven't even met yet, uh, and I love them more than I love myself, and um, you can just leave that picture up. That's fine. She's, no, okay, or not. I, I love them. I love them to death, but what if one day I came home from work, and I, and I looked at my wife, and I said, hey, you know, things have kind of changed. I, I made a commitment to you uh, on our wedding day, that I would, you know, for, for better or for worse, that we would stay together. Uh, but I want you to know that I don't, I don't love you. I don't want a relationship with you, but I want to honor that commitment to you. So my commitment is to provide for you and, and uh, to put food on the table and to provide a roof uh, over our heads and those things. And I want to provide for you and our family, but I don't love you. I don't want a relationship with you. How do you think that my wife would take that? You can say something if you want. Probably not very well, I would assume. Though in one, in one sense, it sounds okay, right? I'm going to provide for you. I'll do my best to make sure that you're taken care of. That's good. But on the other side of things, I don't want a relationship with you. I don't love you. Right? They don't, those things can't go together in a marriage. Right? My wife and I, the way that, that, that God lays things out in a marriage, is that we, we become one flesh, we become one, and we have a relationship that's reciprocating love, right? It goes around, it's not one way. So a relationship is that, it's, it's two ways, it's not just one. So we desire a relationship with one another out of, because we love one another, so much more does Jesus desire a relationship with us each and every one of us, the Bible says. He doesn't want our religious devotion to him. He desires a relationship with us through faith in him. So Jesus does not want our religious devotion or our religious uh, works going towards him if we don't have our faith in him. He desires a relationship with us over our religious devotion to him. So our story this morning, as you may have picked up on as we read, is about that, uh, that very thing, that religion and a relationship do not go together. They cannot go together. So we're going to start in verse 36, and we're going to walk through this passage, and we'll break it down and, and, and just kind of go through it together. Verse 36 says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him, uh, Jesus, to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. So if you're new to this whole church thing, if this is uh, your first time here, or, or you don't know much about the scriptures, a Pharisee is nothing more than a rel- religious leader. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these guys who, who held themselves up in high esteem, that people looked up at, because they were very religious people. Uh, They were very good at keeping the law. They were very good at doing what God had asked them from the law in the Old Testament. Uh, They wouldn't lift a finger on the Sabbath day. They knew how to pray very long prayers and use very, uh, very eloquent words and things like that. These Pharisees are religious leaders. So in human eyes, they were very religious people. They were very uh, godly people, some might have said. But the Pharisees were religious leaders, and the story is about Jesus and this Pharisee. This Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner one day. So what usually happened is uh, if there was a, a rabbi in town kind of passing through, uh, religious leaders would invite him over to their house and they would sit down and have a meal together. So Jesus is a rabbi, he's a teacher, and this Pharisee invites Jesus over and of course Jesus never turns down a meal so he goes and eats at this Pharisee's house and uh, they had this whole eating thing figured out more than we do. We like to sit down at chairs and eat from, from you know, our tables and our backs start to hurt. They would lay down and eat, which I think is awesome. 
I don't know why we ever got away from it, but they would lay down on like kind of like recline on their side and eat off the table that was really low. Uh, and their feet kind of kicked out past uh, behind them going away from the table. And the reason they did this was because in those days, uh, modern conveniences were not uh, like we have them today. So they didn't have paved roads and nice shoes like we have. They were walking on dirt and dust, and as I can attest to from walking through the mountains of Lesotho, Africa, a lot of animal poop, I'm sure. Um, So, and they were wearing open-toed shoes, so their feet were disgusting, and it was commonplace, common hospitality, if a guest were invited to a home, that if the, the person that owned the home had the means to have a servant or the means to provide a meal for somebody else, they'd invite them in, and upon entering the house, the guest would walk in, And this Pharisee would have had uh, a basin of water and a servant to come and wash his feet, to wash his feet clean from all the all the walking that he had been doing. He would have also come up and greeted him with a kiss. So it's not like a weird, creepy kiss, like you might be thinking. It's like kind of like a handshake in our culture, or a hug, or something like that. A kiss on the cheek, just to greet. It was uh, being hospitable, right? To come and and greet this guy uh, as he comes through the door, wash his feet, and anoint his head with some kind of oil. It'd be uh, either some kind of fragrant oil, oil to make him smell better or uh, some kind of religious practice uh, as an anointing of oil to say, you're welcome into my house. So that was common hospitality. That's how things should have gone. Um, And after the meal, after they would have sat down and had dinner and began conversation about why this Pharisee invited Jesus over in the first place, they surely would have gone to talk about the Torah, the the Old Testament uh, law, talking about what God demands of us, talking about things of religion. That would have been why the Pharisee invited Jesus over in the first place. But we find out from this passage that none of that happens. Jesus walks in, uh, they have the meal, and he doesn't show any hospitality. The, The guy's there just to find out some answers about Jesus. Who is this guy? There's a lot of buzz going around about this Jesus. And they would have opened up the doors to the public after the meal. So there was likely a courtyard in the house, or the house was big enough to hold enough people. They would open the doors after the meal, and people from the public would just walk in and kind of stand around the house and listen to the conversation. As a rabbi and Pharisees are having conversation, people wanted to know what they were saying. So they would invite people in, and people would come and stand. So it was probably standing room only, and we get to the scene that we do in verse 37. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now that's probably Luke's nondescript way to say that this woman was probably a prostitute. She was someone that everyone in that room would have known who she was because uh, of her occupation. So there's a woman who was a sinner, and she walks into this home. So first off, her walking in this home is a big deal in the first place, that she even came through those doors. But it says, when she learned that he was reclining, that is, Jesus was at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Now, what she came to do was probably a premeditated act to come in and to use this perfume on Jesus, to show him that she loves him and to show her, her, uh, her love for Jesus for what he's done for her. Right, to come and to, to break this perfume open and to pour it on Jesus as an act of love. This perfume was likely very, very expensive. Uh, it would have taken uh, maybe a year's worth of wages just to buy this bottle of perfume. But for her, it was at no cost. Right? It, didn't, it didn't matter the cost because of what Jesus had done for her and who he was. It says in uh, verse 38, standing behind Jesus at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. I don't think she had planned what happens when she actually gets in that room. When she walks through the room and she's standing behind Jesus' feet getting ready to use this perfume, 
What I think happened is this sense of uh, overwhelming, uh, the sense of overwhelming sin came up in her, that she understood that she was a sinner before God, and she understood who was standing in front of her. So this overwhelming sense of uh, just brokenness over her sin, but then also this overwhelming sense of joy for who Jesus is and what he's done for her. I think this all just kind of happened and she didn't plan it. Right, she came in ready to use that perfume on Jesus, but she wasn't ready for what actually happened. She begins to pour tears as she's standing over his feet behind him in this room full of people. People probably staring at her. It's really kind of an awkward scene as you read it. Uh, but people are probably staring at her, knowing who she is and what's happening. She's pouring tears on his feet, and she, she realizes that, that there's nowhere else to go. I don't have a towel to clean his feet off of my tears. So she lets down her hair and begins to wipe his feet with her uh, with her hair. In that culture, this is a big deal. It's highly inappropriate for, for a woman in public to let down her hair. So for her, a woman, a prostitute nonetheless, to walk into this room and stand behind the feet of this rabbi and to cry on his feet and then to let down her hair and to begin wiping his feet with her hair was very, very inappropriate. And the people understood what was going on, that what she was doing was not okay. But if you pay attention to the story, Jesus doesn't stop her, does he? No, Jesus does not stop this woman from doing what she's doing. In verse 39, when the Pharisee, the religious man who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this person, uh, this person is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So all this Pharisee, this religious leader can think about as this, as this scene unfolds, is not about her, her love for Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that she receives. All that he can think about is who this woman is and who Jesus says that he is, but he's not proving to be. This Pharisee says if Jesus were indeed a prophet, he would know who this woman is and he would stop her. But because he doesn't stop her, I know he's not a prophet. I know he has no clue what's going on. Therefore, I know he's not who he says he is. This Pharisee is only concerned with his place at the table and not about who is standing before him. Then we read it in verse 40. And I love this. Jesus answered Simon. Simon didn't say a word. It says Simon thought these things and then Jesus answered him, which I guess proves him to be a prophet more than Simon expected to see. Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, go ahead and say it, teacher. He said a moneylender had, had two debtors and one owed a lot, one owed a little. Uh, they both couldn't repay. Uh, this is the parable he tells. They both couldn't repay uh, him back for what they owed. So the guy just forgave him, right? What a great day. That'd be awesome if somebody would do that for our debt. Uh, but I don't expect that to happen. But this guy forgives these two people. One owed a lot, one owed a little. Then he asked Simon, who would love this guy more? The guy that owed a lot or the guy that owed a little? And I can only picture Simon in, the, in this moment, like I remember being in high school and being in one of my classes and cutting up with my friends and my, my teacher calling me out on a question and you, know, you kind of look up and you remember the context of what she was saying like five minutes ago and you think you heard the question but you're like, I have no idea. So you just throw out an answer and every now and then you got it right, right? You're just like revolutionary war and she looks at you like, how did you know that? Well then everybody's looking at you like, good job. And you're like, that's right, I got this. I can only imagine that's what Simon's doing in, in, this, in this scene, right? Jesus asks him a question. Simon's like, all right, what's, what's your question? He asks the question and Simon responds and gets the answer correct. And Jesus says, good job, Simon. You've judged correctly. 
I can only see Simon being more puffed up with, with pride as, as Jesus says, good job, would I, answer, would I answer the question correctly? But then he goes on to say this. Turning toward the woman, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Which I also think is hilarious. Who didn't see this woman? Why would Jesus even ask that? Do you see this woman? Jesus, I see the woman. She's crying all over my floor and pouring out perfume and acting a fool in here in front of everybody. How do I not see her? Says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she keeps wetting my feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. With her hair. You gave me no kiss. She, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. You know, we were just in Lesotho, Africa, just a few weeks ago. And one of these villages that we went into, we've been trying to go to this village for uh, probably about a year or more. And every time we go to this village, it's been maybe five times or so, we walk in and, and it's, uh, it's normal for, for us to walk in and ask for the chief of the village. If the chief isn't there, then we leave and go on to somewhere else because we want to ask the chief for permission to teach in his village, his or her village. And every time we go to this village, it's called Doquaning, every time we go there and we ask for the chief, the chief is never home. So we haven't had the opportunity to go and to preach in this village. Well, this last trip, we walk in and we, we go into this village and we, we start walking down the mountain. And uh, when we get there, instead of going to find the chief, this guy waves us over and he's, he's in this animal pen and he's over there uh, butchering a cow that must have died the day before. He's in there uh, cleaning the animal and he, he invites us over and says, hey, I need you to go down to this house at the bottom. There's a woman down there who's very sick and she needs prayer. So we say, okay, we'll, we'll do that. So instead of going to find the chief, we go straight to this woman uh, to see what is wrong with her and to pray with her. Well, we get down to the house and uh, we come around the corner and she's sitting outside and there's a few people around her kind of tending to her needs and um, really from the looks of it, it looks like she's uh, succumbing to HIV, AIDS, uh, maybe tuberculosis or something is setting in. She looks very, very sick. And as we spend time with her talking and sharing with her about the love of God and her family who's there. We spend time praying with her. As we're doing this, people begin to gather and they start circling around and the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And this man who invited us over in the first place ends up coming up to us and telling us that that's his wife. So we spend time with the family and the people there and we're talking to them. And, and, and my translator uh, looked at us and he said, why don't you go ahead and just share the gospel? And I'm not going to ask twice. If he tells me I can do it, I'm sure it's okay. So instead of finding the chief, we went ahead and just shared the gospel to these people. And as we shared the gospel, this man who was down in the, in the animal pen uh, cleaning the animal is focused on us, not blinking an eye. Usually in, in that culture, it's not, uh, it's not really anything for them just to kind of be looking at the ground or looking away as we're teaching. They're listening, but it's just kind of their culture. He was looking at us, and I don't think he blinked, blinked the entire time. And as we're sharing the gospel with this man about the love of Jesus and what he's done for us, as we, we kind of wrap up the story of the gospel, this man looks at us and says, hey, I want to follow Jesus. And that's not normal, especially for a man in that culture to do that in front of uh, a crowd of people. But he says, I want to do this. And I'm like, okay, so we're walking through next steps. So, well, this is what it looks like and this is what it means, 
right? So in their culture, uh, their, their spiritual life is all tied around uh, witch doctors and the ancestors and, and praying and sacrificing to them, all to have access to God. We tell them that Jesus is the only mediator that First John tells us. There's no other mediator between God and man. This guy says, I want to believe in Jesus. Well, we say, hey, buddy, those charms you're wearing, you got to take them off. Right? You, you go to the witch doctor get, to get these charms for protection. If you want to follow Jesus, those things, are, those things are standing in your way. You can't trust in the, the power of darkness. And as we're telling him uh, this, as, like, literally as the words are coming out of our mouth, he's pulling the charms off his neck. And he throws them at us. He says, I don't, I don't want them anymore. So I, know that's, I know that's not the truth. I know what I've heard today from the word of God is true. Then he goes on to tell us that he's a pastor in that village. Now that means that he's not a pastor of the word of God. He's a pastor of uh, some other spiritual way that they follow. But he's a man of prominence. He's a pastor in that village. And this man is showing, just like this woman, the self-forgetfulness in worship. Right, just like this woman who walks in and, and defies all cultural norms to worship and to praise Jesus who is before her, this man, in front of a crowd of his peers and his family, does the unthinkable. He takes off the charms from the witch doctor and throws them away and says, I want to follow Jesus and Jesus alone. So he puts his faith in Jesus in front of everyone in that village that day. And I will never forget the looks of the people around, his family, his friends, as they look at us and they look at him and think, what is happening? Right, these looks of judgment. Their religion is holding them back from following Jesus, but this man understands the gospel. He understands that he is a sinner before holy God and that Jesus came to pay the price for that sin. So in a moment of of self-forgetfulness and worship towards Jesus, he takes his charms off and he throws them away and he puts his faith and trust in Jesus. This man, like this woman, is showing self-forgetfulness and worship. And as we continue to read in verse 49, we'll see what religion, what their response is. Verse 48, he says to the woman, your sins have been forgiven. Then verse 49, he says, those who were reclining at the table, that is the Pharisee and his other religious guests, began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? As you notice, these guys are pretty cowardly. They they like to talk to themselves and not out loud. They say to themselves, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's no prophet. He's claiming to be the son of God. There's no way. Who does he think that he is to forgive sins? You know, religion breeds self-righteousness and pride, but a relationship with Jesus breeds humility and selfless love. Those things can't go hand in hand. They don't go together. Religion breeds this self-righteousness inside of us, like these Pharisees have. The, The word of God, which became flesh and dwelt among men, is sitting in their living room, in their dining room, eating a meal with them, and they refuse to see the truth that is in front of them because their religion is holding them back. Their religion says you have to do this and do that. Jesus says I've paid the price. There's nothing that you can do but have faith in me. So as they begin to think to themselves, who is this guy who's forgiving sins? What authority does he have? The next verse he says in verse 50. Then he looks at the woman, I don't think this is coincidence, after they've, they've said this to themselves. He says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, in, the, uh, in that same village of Dokwaning that we were in and sharing the gospel, that guy came to faith. I'll never forget the faces of the people who were judging him as he, as he made this profession of faith in Jesus. But what I'll never forget is when we turned to them and said, do you see what's happening right now? 
This man understands the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that there's no other way of salvation but through him alone. As we told the crowd these things, as we reiterated the gospel to them, I pointed at every one of them wearing charms and I said, those things you're wearing aren't gonna protect you. And in that moment, something changed. As I called out their religious ways, they began to get angry and frustrated at us. Even though they just saw a man, this religious leader in their village, be transferred from darkness to light, they still refused to see the truth of the gospel because of their religion. They began to get angry at us. And in their anger, they told us, there's no way they're taking their charms off. We're welcome to come back here and teach whenever we want, and we'll believe what we want to believe, but there's no way we're taking these off. These are the way of our ancestors. This is how we were taught to believe. We can't believe in this Jesus if this is what he asks of us. In verse 50, you can't miss this verse, what he says to this woman. You know, it's the woman's faith that saves her, not the love that she she shows for Jesus. In the original language, the word uh, in verse 50 you're, this has saved is a, uh, a type of uh, verb that means that happened in the past and it has ongoing consequences, right? So what he's saying is your faith that you already have has saved you, right? Salvation has come into your heart because of the faith that you have in me. Now go in peace, right? So we can either assume this woman has heard Jesus teach in another village or maybe earlier that day in that village, or she has heard about Jesus and she understands who he is and she walks in and she shows this self-forgetfulness uh, and worship towards Jesus because of who he is. And she, in her heart, shows that she has faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's already saved you. Now go in the peace of God that surpasses understanding. Go in the peace of God that says, you're now my child and there's no way that anything can snatch you out of my hand. You see, sin binds us all in one way, but faith in Jesus, salvation and hope in Jesus binds us all in a far greater way. Anyone who professes faith in Jesus becomes a child of God, and in that there is no undoing. Religion says you must do this and do that in order to earn favor with God. Jesus says a relationship with me is the only way back to the kingdom of light. There is no other way. These Pharisees at this table refused to see the truth that was in front of them on this day. But this woman, who was a sinner, a bad sinner in in, in most people's eyes, who deserved no forgiveness, earned forgiveness through her faith in Jesus on this day. As we close, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and, and close your eyes. What's interesting about this story, as I read through it, and I didn't see it until it took a while to understand What's striking about the story is this woman says not a word the entire time. A lot of times cultural Christianity says that you have to say a certain prayer or or say a certain uh, set of words or think certain things in order to come to faith in Jesus. We like to complicate the gospel way too much. This woman understood her need for repentance, her need for forgiveness. So she turned to Jesus because he was her last hope. And she found forgiveness in him. But in this story, she doesn't say a word. Jesus doesn't say, hey, now pray this prayer. Jesus doesn't say, now recite this verse. She doesn't say a word. 
yet she's forgiven of her sins. If the gospel, Jesus is always concerned with the heart. It's always a heart issue. The Pharisees looked good on the outside, but were rotten and, and had hard hearts on the inside. This woman, from outward appearance, may have been dirty and unclean, but inside she was made new. She was made new through what Jesus was going to do for her on the cross. Religion doesn't save us. Faith in Jesus saves us. If you're in this place today, if you're a part of the body of Christ, if you've put your faith in him, I've had to ask myself as I've studied this passage over and over, when's the last time that I showed self-forgetfulness in worship? When's the last time that I I sat here in in a worship service and I put my hands up in praise, not caring what people thought around me, not caring who was looking at me? When's the last time I showed self-forgetfulness in my worship towards Jesus? And a lot of times religion can kind of get back in the way. Even though we've become children of God, religion can still stand in our way. We kind of get stuck back in our old ways thinking we have to do this and do that in order to earn favor. God has done it through Jesus. He desires a relationship with us, not, not some checklist to check off every day and every week. If you're in this place, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, the story is clear. The way of salvation is through Jesus alone. There's no other way. You can try to be as good as you want to be. You can come to church every Sunday for the rest of your life. You can read your Bible every day for the rest of your life. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're still under sin. Bound to the powers of darkness and not free in Jesus. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. We tell people in Lesotho, every time we teach the gospel, that you've heard the truth today. And the Bible says that you must respond to it. That can be a passive response. It could be an active response. It could be uh, so many different things, but there's always two answers, a yes or a no. I believe in him or I don't. I want to follow Jesus or I don't. So today is the day. So just like this woman who said no certain prayer or prayed uh, or said no certain verse or, or said no certain words, in her heart she had faith in Jesus. You can have faith in Jesus in your heart and be transferred to the kingdom of light and have hope in Jesus. It's offered to all people. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we thank you for who you are and the truth that is found in the gospel, the truth that is found in your word, that we, we can read it and understand it, God, and comprehend what you've done for us. God, the gospel, the good news that you've, you've come to die on the cross for our sins and to raise again to life, to give us hope of eternal life is a simple message. God, it's so simple, but we complicate it so much. Just like these Pharisees in the story that end up, ended up leading you to the cross in the first place. God, I pray that you would bind, uh, bind religion in our hearts and take it out. God, just take all the religion out of us. God, let us open our hearts up to you and a relationship with you. God, we know that you desire a relationship with us And we know that comes through faith and nothing else. So I pray for each one of us in this room, God, that our hearts would be sensitive to that, that we would learn from your word and what it says. God, let us not leave out of these doors unchanged by 
the word that we've read. Be unchanged by the truth that you give us. God, convict us of sin. Lead us to you. Draw us back into relationship with you. God, lead us to the end. We love you. We trust you. We ask all things in Jesus' name. Amen.